Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. This week, we talked to Dr. Jordan Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is a GI hospitalist at Peak Gastroenterology Associates in Colorado. He's also in private practice at Gentle GI in Houston, Texas. In addition to having a special interest in inflammatory bowel disease, he also is a yoga instructor and enthusiastic practitioner. He has experience in eating disorders and disordered eating, and he has also taken classes and trainings on becoming a trauma-informed therapist. So we talked to him about all of these things, and it was a really fascinating conversation. Just a triggered warning that we do discuss disordered eating and eating disorders in this episode. Cheers! Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are so excited to be talking to our friend, Dr. Jordan Shapiro. Jordan, it's wonderful to have you on the show. It is such an honor to be on the show. I'm so I'm so excited. I'm a little nervous because Dr. Ruben is on tomorrow, and I, and then all the patients who are like to me like the VIPs of the podcast. So I'm I'm honored to be here. Well, we are honored to have you. I know you're going to yes. do an excellent job. So stop being stop being nervous. You'll be fine. Fine. but we start out with a very unprofessional question of what are you drinking let me give you the most recent thing i had is chai so i'm i am obsessed i spent a lot of time in india actually in part because of the topic today uh doing yoga and uh for 20 years i've made like homemade chai from scratch most days of the week and that is my that's my beverage of choice that's lovely, lovely. Lovely. Robin, what about you? I am drinking something super fancy. Actually, it's not fancy, but I have it in a fancy glass. Lemon lime, what I like to call electric lights. I'm not feeling a little under the weather, so I have a little electrolytes today. Yesterday was my birthday, and so I opened a bottle of champagne, and so and I didn't drink all of it. I feel very proud of myself. <laughs> very good, Alicia. I'm proud so- of you, too. Thanks, guys. So I am drinking another glass of champagne because I I had plenty left in the bottle. Uh, So that's typical beverage of choice. This one was very special, though, because I had um, referred somebody to come and do some work for us, whatever. And in thanks for the work that I provided to this person, they sent me a bottle of Veuve Clicquot with my name on it. Oh, fancy. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. No, I was like, I'm going to take a picture of the bottle. It's so fun. So it was very sweet, but that was my, I decided I needed to open it on my birthday. So next question for you, Dr. Shapiro is, what is your connection to inflammatory bowel disease? Why did you choose to go into this field of study? So I got into inflammatory bowel disease when I was in training. So I did, my residency was a combined uh, pediatrics and internal medicine program at the University of Cincinnati and Cincinnati Children's. And I yeah, I saw both sides of the street. So I saw I saw the issues related to transition of care from pediatric to adult care, and realized what a big problem it is in all chronic illnesses that start in in pediatrics. And so my initial passion in GI, which is still a big part of my practice, is actually IBS and disorders of gut brain interaction. And there's a lot of overlap in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. But the group of patients who have ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, like every single one in pediatric care, has to have an adult GI doctor. That's not always the 
case in patients who have no constipation or have abdominal pain. And sometimes those things get better as they get older. But every patient, really with, with IBD, is going to when they graduate from pediatric care and need an adult doctor. So I got really fascinated with all the vulnerabilities that patients have getting you know ivory tower <laughs> pediatric care and then just disappearing into the abyss. It's even a hard thing to try to study because, you know, it's actually not true that most patients go from, say, the academic pediatric hospital to the adult one. Um, They scatter all over to private practices, to multiple different institutions. So even tracking them through that is just very, very, very difficult. Um, I, and I like patients who have more complex histories. I like patients that other people in the field sometimes shy away from that are complex, whether it's the psychosocial and kind of gut brain stuff or um, eating disorders or pelvic floor disorders. Like I, if it's under attended to or it's hard, I, I like it because I find that the, it's very rewarding to take those patients on and get them better and get them, give them a safe place to get care. Well, we need people like you who want to take the the complicated cases. You mentioned India, and I know at some point you mentioned spending a lot of time there. So when did that come into play? When did you go spend that much time in India? Yeah, I have hippie parents who were very into, I, mean, I had a Jewish dad and a Catholic mom from the Bronx, and they, they got very into kind of Eastern philosophy growing up. And there's a very famous book called Autobiography of the Yogi about a, a guy named Paramahansa Yogananda who, who came to the West from India to sort of teach yoga in the 40s. And so that was the household I grew up in was kind of a, a mutt. And um, when I was in my teens, I started uh, studying with a medical provider who did some East Indian medicine called Ayurveda. I got very intrigued. I actually got treated by that person for kind of a chronic recurring problem after I wasn't getting better with some of the other care. And I just got very interested in some of the philosophy and approaches and of that medicinal system, which arose in the same part of the world as yoga. And so I had a chance when I was 19, I went to a, a place on the East Coast that's a big yoga retreat center, and they were about to go on a pilgrimage to the Himalayan mountains. And I I had a random stranger that I sat across from in the dining hall click with me. And a couple of months later, I got a letter saying that they had given me uh, like a shares of stock of their new company. And it was like enough money to go on this trip at 19 that I other. So I spent a month in the Himalayas going to a lot of different pilgrimage sites, meditating, doing yoga. And then um, I went back a few other times. The main ones after that first trip, I fell in love and I just was like, when can I go back? So uh, in medical school, I spent three and a half months working in, in a jungle in central India with a group called SEARCH, the Society for Education, Action and Research and Community Health. And they actually came up with a really a, a village-based sepsis, like in, you know, bloodborne infection protocol where these women who had no medical training would attend to the births. They would use an abacus, like the little beads that you slide over. And they could all count to 12 because they could count like to a dozen. So they, they would move one and they had a stopwatch for a minute. So if they moved more than, uh, like every time they'd move a bead, they, they would count to 12 and move a bead. And then if they moved within 60 seconds, more than five, like that was how they would count, are there 60 or more breaths a minute? And they came up with these like clever ways to identify like breathing too fast or 
fever. And then they would actually allow them to give antibiotics. And so they they have like a lot of funding from the Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation. And they they have lowered the infant and neonatal mortality rates like in the villages where they were the worst to lower than India's like goal. And then the last time I went was in 2013 for a, a festival called the Kumbh Mela, which is like it's the biggest gathering on earth. You can see people on the banks of the Ganges River from satellite imaging. And I think that year there were, it's every 12 years, so it's coming up in 2025, but there were 70 million people that showed up. So yeah, I don't know. I'm From the first time I went there, I just, I've been longing to go back and just uh, near and dear to my heart. What an amazing experience. Wow. Safe to say you're a fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you're currently practicing yoga yourself. Like this is part of your daily yeah. life is to sort of do this, but you've also regularly talked to patients about this as well, correct? I won't say it's an everyday thing. Um, although today <laughs> I did two classes in a row, I think because I don't know, it wasn't because I wanted to be able to say that I did, but I, I probably do it two to three days a week um, like that. And we'll talk about the different like parts of yoga because I think, you know, people hear yoga and they think about the stretching and poses or the asanas in Sanskrit. And, and there's a lot of different components to it. But for me, yeah, it's it's been a part of my life for a long time. And I what I always liked in medicine is there's so few things that you recommend to patients that you can personally try and like, thank God, right? I mean, like, I don't want to have high blood pressure. I don't, I don't want, I don't, I'm glad, you know, I'm grateful that I have not experienced um, what many of my patients with IBD have experienced, but there are some things that are more lifestyle oriented with stress management and relaxation and food type things where there's a really low hanging fruit for you to actually experience so that when you talk to patients about it, it's not just another thing that you learn from a textbook or a conference or guidelines. It's actually lived experience. And I, I think that that really makes a world of difference to just say, hey, this is not the only way to get some physical exercise or to tend to the mind-body connection, but it's something that I use and it's helped me. Would you like me to show you and see if it's a tool that you'd like to have in your toolbox? And so I do that a lot with that. I love to cook. I've, I've been a vegetarian my whole life just because I was raised that way, but I love doing that with patients. It's good. It's, you know, they're experiential things instead of just do this because that's what you're supposed to do. I also want to just highlight something that you said that it's not just the poses, like you pointed out the poses, but yoga is not just the poses. They're actually, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the words. I'm just going to say there's eight limbs to yoga. So it's not right. just poses. There's, I'm going to say them in English. There's like restraints, observances. There's the postures. There's breath control, concentration, meditation, um, contemplation, and then withdrawal from the senses. So it's not just what you do when you're taking class and doing the poses, but also um, before anybody who's listening rolls their eyes, because we know that every single person who has any kind of chronic illness, specifically and especially IBD, they have been told a million times, have you tried yoga? And mm -hmm. so it's like one of the things, if you see one of those memes or a GIF or something, it's like, what should you know? never tell somebody with IBD? And one of the things is, have you tried yoga? So I, yeah. as someone who practices yoga and has practiced yoga and has studied it and all of the other limbs of yoga, can you kind of give us maybe more explanation of how you find this helpful for somebody <laughs> with chronic illness, specifically somebody with IBD? I mean, I think all of these types of practices, I hate using this word so early in the podcast, but I mean, a lot of 
patients with chronic illnesses like IBD have experienced gaslighting dismissal. And I think it's very important when you suggest something like this, it's not to replace like the standard of care. I'll go through in, in a moment, there are just a couple of studies that have ever really looked at this formally, the use of yoga in IBD. But I think part of the reason that I think it is really helpful is just to get people back into experiencing and feeling and using their body in ways where they have some control because the, their bodies have become a source of trauma. And, you know, I, I think that's a huge thing. I, I know some of the times I've helped out at the Camp Oasis, you know, I learned that from patients. I learned that from Dr. Tiffany Taft, who studied medical trauma in the IBD population, that, you know, one of the adolescents, young adults said, I got touched so much, like in the hospital, I had so many things done to me that I realized, like, I don't even like when people give me hugs anymore. Did that like hit me in the chest? Because it's like, you know, where is that in our guidelines? Paying, you know, paying attention to and holding space for that. And so what I like about yoga is there's so many avenues to tap into just sort of reconnecting with the body, the mind, the breath, I think that, you know, we don't know a lot of the mechanisms of action. It's one of the things, and I just am finishing up a review paper that I'm submitting with a couple of other authors on just yoga across GI conditions, what's actually been published. And a lot of them are in IBS. There are a couple in IBD. I'll pull up in a moment and go through. But I think that, you know, similar to the evidence with like cognitive behavioral therapy and gut-directed hypnosis, like the, the brain-gut connection is real. We know that a lot of patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease have an, an overlap of those, um, of in, inflammation-driven symptoms and more sort of the gut-brain nervous system dysregulation. And I think that a lot of these practices help or likely help on that that latter piece of this, the gut-brain interaction. I think the other piece of it is it's so common when people, when patients have symptoms, I think th there's this normal, because in the past that may have been, this symptom was the beginning of like a really treacherous part of my life. And I think some of that symptom related, like hypervigilance and anxiety, I mean, we will often tell patients things like, oh, like, you know, if you have a couple loose stools and you've otherwise been well controlled, like, you know, if it lasts for more than 48 hours or so, or 72 hours, then yeah, then and we may need to investigate. But if it's just an episode or two and you go back to normal for the rest of the time, maybe something you ate, it might might have been stress. So I think in that moment of uncertainty, we're like the reality is doctor doesn't know, patient doesn't know, but it's scary for the patient. I think it's nice to have some of these things that, that patients can do to just kind of um, recenter and calm the nervous system down because it could be either. I mean, it could be the beginning of an inflammatory thing, but we know that like stress and anxiety and those things and just the hypervigilance can sometimes sort of propagate symptoms even more or make them more severe. So I think it's just a nice thing to do when, uh, in, in that moment where it's like things are starting to act up to learn how to how to use the breath to relax. And, and, you know, when people are in remission, I think learning to just kind of take back some control of the body. So what are your thoughts? I'm curious, I'm curious, like, Oh, I agree with you hundred percent. I tell people to try you. I say, I know it's cliche. <laughs> so I I've lived with IBD for 23, almost 24 years. And I go through phases of like practicing yoga regularly and then falling off and then practicing yoga regularly and then falling off. And one thing that it has helped me do is, especially when I don't want to listen to my body, <laughs> it helps me get back in touch with, with being able to trust myself and trust what I'm feeling and trust e even being able to know whether the symptoms that I'm feeling are just like what I ate or if, if, because after 23 years, you kind of 
you know, you have a better understanding of when something is actually just what you ate or, you know, when it's like a real symptom, unless it's something brand new, you kind of are like, oh, this is, I know what this is. And so being able to trust yourself, the breathing is just key in calming my nervous system, meditation, centering myself. I mean, I recommend, highly, highly, highly recommend yoga. I don't even know why I fall off the wagon as often as I do, but I always go back to it. It's, I mean, I like that we, we always refer to it as a yoga practice. So it's, you know, it's an evolution. And I mean, I, yep. I would wonder if, I'm, and this is just a question to you, I don't have to take, you know, medications on a regular basis. And, and so like, because you have these things that you, you have to do to take care of your, like on some level, and I've done this still with my yoga and meditation practice, I, I don't want this to become a burden to me. So sometimes like maybe just a permission to be able to say like, I'm doing well, I don't have to do this. Like is mm-hmm. is something that's helpful to just let yourself exercise. Cause it's, I know we can all like beat ourselves up. Like, oh, I, you know, I haven't done it. I fell off the wagon, but like you have things that I don't have to deal with that you have to do and you do those. Yep. And so yeah, I don't know. I think it's okay to like not let yoga be a burden. And, you know, and, and like you said, you learn to listen to yourself and like, Hey, I think I need some of this. Yeah. <laughs> so. That is true. Thank you. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take yeah. that permission to not let yoga be a burden. Good. I'm glad. Will you talk us through a little bit? Because I mean, again, you have studied this extensively. You've, you are, did you do yoga instructor training as well? I did do it too. I had done yoga for almost 20 years and I thought I was getting asked to teach it mostly to, to medical students and like medical trainees when I was still an academic. And, uh, and I still occasionally get asked to do that. And I just felt like, I mean, I realized I have an MD, but I just, in the yoga community, I might as well just do a 200 hour yoga teacher training. It was good. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad that I did, but I don't know that I needed to do it. Talk us through a little bit, because Robin mentioned the eight arms, the eight avenues. Will you talk us through uh-huh. a little bit of kind of just uh, give us the very quick and dirty version of this? We don't have 200 hours of like yeah. the principles of yoga and what people might maybe take away from it. That Because again, I, I mean, the what I practice for yoga is definitely the moves, the movements, mm. the breath work there, but not probably any of the other limbs. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in the nuttiest of nutshells, like, I mean, like the restraints and observances, I think there are things like to try to, to somewhat avoid or, or limit in your life. And then things that are helpful to, to try to, to focus on. So like, these are things like a common one for the restraints that people may have heard of is ahimsa or nonviolence. So like in Jainism, like a religion and um, like Gandhi, I mean, that was a, one of his like core values was nonviolence, uh, even in protest. So there, and there are five of those. So that's, you know, those are the restraints with the observances. Those are, I'm trying to think of uh, like studies. So there's Sanskrit terms for all these, but just like actually having some formal time set aside to actually study like a bit more rigorously. Tapas, which is like asceticism, which is just trying to, I guess, have a more uh, pure practice and really identify like, what's your intent in doing this? So, and I think sometimes that's hard in Western yoga because there's so much wrapped up in the physical body, but this is really like kind of a mind body. And if people want it to be like spiritual practice, it certainly doesn't have to be that. And then, you know, the other ones, I would say asanas is the term for posture. So that's where like, when you go to a yoga class, like you're doing poses, those are, while they're kind of like, Hey, this is, this is yoga here in the West. Um, the reality is, is that all of those things are to really prepare. So when you get to the point of like meditation, you have, you know, you've done something, you've moved the body. So when you sit it down uh, in a seated posture 
or or there are other ways laying down however you're comfortable that it you know it's not restless like it's moved enough it's stretched it's limber so you don't have that like hip flexor that's screaming at you because it's tight so like it traditionally like even the postures are really meant as leading up to the meditation part of yoga. Breath control or breathing practices, which there are a number of them that um, seek to quiet some jerkiness to the breath and, and gain control over the breath, which the fascinating thing to me about the breath has always been like, it's really a two-way street. So like, you don't have to think about it and life would be really difficult if you had to think through every single breath you took. But what's interesting and always been interesting to me is when you are scared or you're anxious or you're upset, those emotions change the breath. Like you can think about the jerkiness of the breath or the big, you know, pauses if somebody is sobbing. And the interesting thing is that you can actually, you know, move things the other way. You can actually learn to breathe in a way that changes your emotions too. And so the, there's a lot of emphasis on the breath. Withdrawal of the senses, which is just learning to not pay attention to, it's not like you're literally folding your ears in or your nose in, but just learning to not be distracted by the five senses, which we, you know, go out into the world and interact with the world using. Learning to concentrate, which is the you know preceding step, I guess, to meditation. Meditation, which is really a one-pointed focus, and that can be on it can be on the breath, it can be on a candle flame, it can be on a point in the body, it can be on a sound, which is often called a mantra. And then you know the last stage is said to be this pure contemplation or samadhi, where you're just sort of you know completely absorbed in this this state and blissfulness. And so yeah, I think what what I would say of those because that's like a mouthful step. Like when you look at like studies of yoga and like the core that's probably the most accessible and makes the most sense, especially in the West, it's really breathing poses and meditation. So I, I would say I usually focus on those when I'm talking about it with patients and don't get into all the other things, but just know that there's like a vast yogic philosophy and different systems out there. Very cool. And I do think, I mean, it's interesting to hear Robin talk about kind of her practice and what that does to help her. So it's interesting to kind of put those two together. I'm going to move us away from blissfulness and unity <laughs> into disordered eating, uh, which feels uh -huh. like a, a jerky breath transition. But one of the things you mentioned is that you have sort of become the person that gets phone calls from other practitioners when they have a patient, especially somebody living with inflammatory bowel disease that may have eating patterns that are not serving them. So talk a little bit about how this has happened with you, how this has become part of your practice and, and how you help these folks. Yes, I, I see a lot of patients who have formal eating disorders, disordered eating, um, with or without other GI problems. Uh, and so those, I guess, patients who experience these things as a whole, I've, I've been very empathic and sympathetic toward them. I mean, I had an eating disorder for, for over 12 years. I had anorexia, shifted into bulimia. And I, I mean, I like I've said before, I was really good at it for 12 years. And I said that because you know, I think those things are all of those types of things where there's addictive like behavior, whether it's controlling with eating or it's substances, it's over exercising, it's workaholism. I mean, all of those things are trying to soothe some kind of pain. Whenever somebody comes and I, they've already had that identified, or you know, we uncover that they're using substances or or they're using food in a way that's disordered or could be harmful, I always start with just this open acceptance, like, hey, this is part of you right now where you are 
are in your journey. And this is doing something for you. And we need to kind of identify what is it that this, what role is this serving? What, and, and a lot of times it's getting people to see that like this was actually at its core, an adaptive response and it's become maladaptive. It's, it's starting to actually cause more problems. And so this has all different kinds of shapes and sizes and ways that it can look in the IBE population. I mean, I have had patients who, you know, have like ARFID or avoidant restrictive food intake disorder where they're, they're just, they're not eating because uh, it's not related to the traditional like eating disorder, things like, you know, body image or fear of, you know, gaining weight. Uh, it's really more just due to you know, it might be pain, it might be diarrhea, and they're just, they're trying to avoid it to avoid these uncomfortable um, symptoms. I've also had patients who, before they were, were diagnosed with their IBD, had disordered eating, but they didn't, they were flying under the radar enough where it was not noticed. And then they developed IBD. And, and some of those patients have struggled a lot just because but you, we spent a lot of time trying to control the inflammation and control the symptoms. And, it, and in many of them, it kind of comes out later that, hey, I was eating a bowl of cereal three times a day and that's all I ate. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not necessarily normal. It's just this very like narrow spectrum of foods. And um, that person had some sensory issues with food and aver aversions to certain textures and things like that. And so they just, and some, and some obsessive compulsive uh, tendencies. And so, you know, all those things kind of combine that when they got, when they developed Crohn's disease, it just became like an added challenge in managing it. And then you get, it's, it's not unheard of that somebody can have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease and have one of the more traditional eating disorders like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. And those are challenging in their own way. But if you take patients who don't have IBD and have traditional eating disorders, more, more than half have some sort of GI disorder uh, or symptoms, I should say, ranging from you know feeling full early to actual objective evidence on testing of gastroparesis where the stomach doesn't empty normally to abdominal pain and bloating. Constipation is a very common one. And a lot of those, especially in restrictive eating disorders where the stomach reflexes just aren't getting challenged normally. So we lose the ability, the normal reaction when you swallow food and the stomach should, the upper part of the stomach should expand or what we, we call it accommodation. Like, But when you've been restricting, we lose that reflex. And so a lot of patients, they eat two or three bites and they say, I'm full, I, I can't eat anymore. And there's sometimes an actual physiologic reason for that. Um, it's the same thing in restrictive eating disorders with constipation. You know, when you lose muscle mass, like there's muscle throughout the GI tract, and we think that that's at least part of why that's such a common symptom. So that's challenging because a lot of patients come into GI clinic with symptoms, and we don't get very much training in eating disorders. And for many eating disorder patients who have GI symptoms, the number one treatment that is most likely to get them better is recovery from the eating disorder. So you can imagine if you just keep throwing things at symptoms and you don't actually treat the underlying problem that got them there, they don't get better. And so that is, I, you know, I have the lived experience, which I, um, I think has probably made me a little bit more sensitive to it, but it's also just realizing how common this is. And there's the last thing I'll say is there's just, there's so little education in general. The one talk I got in fellowship was one I gave a grand rounds on. And there's so many myths, like, I mean, even with anorexia nervosa, it's around five or 6% of patients actually are actually like underweight. And so we go in with this stereotype that like, it's the, you know, really, really, really skinny person. And, and 
the reality is there's a spectrum and even patients with anorexia nervosa can be normal body weights or BMIs. And the binge eating disorder side of the spectrum, those patients get missed all the time because they don't fit what people stereotypically think of as having an eating disorder. And they're, they're suffering all the same. And the root desire to soothe something or accomplish something with those things, even if it's unconscious, is, is still there. It's still the same. I feel like for people with IBD too, and this is just anecdotal, right? People that I know that I talk to other patients, a lot of us, man, we're hungry. We want to eat and we can't, like I have said multiple times, I don't want my food to hurt me. So I just don't eat. No, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. So I, I think, and I, and identifying that and just understanding what, what's driving that. And so, I mean, sometimes that takes some investigations, whether it's labs or imaging or endoscopy, but, but so many times when those are normal, the message that the patients get is, well, good news. And it's like, I, yeah, but I, I hurt, right? And you, so people feel a bit dismissed. And then I would say, just like in, in you know, IBD world, even in GI, like, there are a lot of providers that are not comfortable managing even like moderate to severe complexity of IBD in the community. And I would say when you get patients who, who there isn't evidence of inflammation driving the symptoms and they hurt, and it seems like it might be more of like a, what do you call it? Neurogastroenterology motility or just a, it's a sensation problem. Like it's not, you don't have an ulcer, you don't have significant inflammation. Your nerves for some reason, when you eat the food are just firing ouch, right? And, and we pay attention because in the past, that may have been a sign that you are having a flare or you had a stricture or something bad was happening. And pain is this evolutionary signal to say like, pay attention. Like there's potential or like a currently occurring threat to your body. We have all kinds of examples where that's not true. I mean, irritable bowel syndrome, functional dyspepsia, which are common things in, in GI where people may have abdominal pain or they may hurt as soon as they eat. But there are other things too, like migraines, right? Where you, you can have a crushing headache and majority of the time, if you went and got some sort of imaging, it's normal. It does not mean that you don't hurt. But I think in the gut, especially when you have a chronic inflammatory condition, it's really tricky to sort those things out. And I think there's a lot of emphasis and growing emphasis on trying to tease out, like, is this just your IBD or do you have IBD with IBS? But then that's still not happening all the time efficiently. And then the next step, which is we know what to do if there's more inflammation, right? You might have to change your regimen. You might need to, you know, course of steroids, whatever it may be. But like, I don't know that it's, I would say my experience has been that there's a huge deficit in what do you do with the, like the more disorders of gut brain interaction overlapping with IBD, whether it's, you know, using a neuromodulator like amitriptyline or duloxetine or one of these medicines that just work on more nerve pain, or it's using buspirone, which is you know, an anxiety medicine that can help with that feeling full early. That's a whole different, ballpark. So just like the people who focus on like motility disorders often don't see a lot of IBD. I think the patients who see a lot of IBD often don't do a lot of the motility stuff or the complex IBS stuff. And there's there are often things you can do to make the symptoms better. I think I've said this on the show before. One thing that helped me was being able to describe my pain more specifically using more descriptive words. Is it sharp? Is it shooting? Is it radiating? Is it burning? Because nerve pain is different. That's one thing that I recommend to patients is, I mean, it, it sucks, but just like getting in there and feeling it and understanding it and being able to have better words to describe what your pain feels like. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think 
we did a lot, you know, we'll put reason for visit abdominal pain. And there's so many varieties of that. Like the nerve pain from a pinched nerve in the, in the back is very different from the nerve pain from like in the gut often what people feel. And we also miss things like abdominal wall pain all the time, especially in patients who've had a history of abdominal surgeries, sometimes, you know, scar tissue and nerve entrapment and just sort of the trigger points that form along those surgical scar. I mean, they can hurt a lot, right? Right. And, and it elicits this tremendous like response of like concern, obviously, because it's right where the problem was. You see a lot of that too. And so I think, yes, like the more descriptive and just being open to like, I know how much patients in the IBD community, like they know their bodies so well. And also when they go to like, especially an emergency department, everything is going to get blamed on the Crohn's disease with ulcerative colitis. And that's where I, I love what you just suggested because I think like being able to say no something about this does not feel the same as can be really helpful as long as the provider listens to that's that gets very often debated on our episodes because patients don't feel heard and that is very problematic and and contributes to the trauma and contributes to the psychogenic pain that comes with living mm-hmm. with this disease yeah. as somebody who does work with people with infl- with eating disorders and disordered eating how do you coach people when again that response is a trauma response to food mm-hmm. how do you coach them in trying to introduce more foods or to change habits that have kept them safe essentially that's probably above my pay grade, but it's a great question. I mean, it, the the beautiful thing in the in the the world of, of eating disorder care, at least in Houston where I am, is that there's a very robust group of physicians, dietitians, psychologists, you know, and and it's it's a real it's a really niche area because you're you're not really I don't I don't want to say you're walking on eggshells, but I mean, I just had a patient with anorexia who I I had to send to another provider to put the feeding tube in, and I I coached a little bit about like don't do the normal. Thing. And this you know, person ended up telling them, okay, so like, don't eat after 6 p.m. And like, they were pushing like plant-based nutrition and like, it, it actually, like the patient was like, this is great. I don't have to eat after six. And, you know, so I think there's some things we do in routine care that, and, and it's just being open to learning from patients and from other providers. Like, hey, I don't do weights on my patients. I do blind weights if I need one because I don't usually need it. And that can be really triggering for people. But what I try to do, so, I mean, trauma-informed care is something that I, in the last few years have really started leaning into learning about um, and trying to apply to care. And there's there's this model of the four R's. And so I try to, to answer your question, I mean, they are realized how common trauma is, right? And it's not just the like really horrible things like sexual abuse and physical trauma, car wreck or wartime experiences, but it can also be medical trauma is a huge one in the IBD population. And even things that, you know, sometimes people in the past have referred to them as bigger, little T's, bigger, little traumas, like anything you feel traumatize you is trauma. Like that's the bottom line. There's no need to argue this should or shouldn't have caused it because there are people who just have a really emotional, their emotions are neglected as young children. And like that has a profound impact on some people. And so I think giving permission that like, if you felt traumatized by it, even if 99 other people didn't, I validate that. And so like the four R's are realize the widespread impact. It's every, I mean, you have to, if you don't pick it up in a, in multiple patients a day, you're just missing it. That's what I tell myself and I tell my staff and I tell other people, um, recognize some of the signs and symptoms. And so, you know, this is tricky and this is where I learn a lot from psychologists. And, and I know that I'm imperfect with it, but 
I mean, there are responses because people who are severely traumatized have very narrow windows of tolerance sometimes. And so before they get hyper aroused, and that may be, you may see vital signs going up or changing or hypo aroused where they just got to get out of that discomfort. And that may be like dissociation where somebody looks like they're just kind of dazed or, you know, staring off in a space, but they're actually like responding to feeling really, really like terrified in the moment. Realize, recognize, respond um, by trying to integrate, you know, an awareness of this in a practice and then resisting re-traumatization. So I'll give you a common place this comes up for me with like eating disorder GI care is many patients with uh, with eating disorders have histories of trauma. I, you know, I've had multiple patients in the last year where they come to me for, let's say, constipation. They've tried multiple laxatives and we're thinking about maybe the pelvic floor muscles just aren't relaxing. And a normal first step with that is to do a rectal exam. I will talk to them about the why that I think that could be helpful to see if the muscles are able to relax when they try to simulate pooping. But I will ask them, you know, do I have your permission to ask a few sensitive questions related to the rectal exam? And I'm constantly looking at their body language. I've had patients curl up, you know, you can see their eyes get big and I'll tell them this is the why. This is what the exam is like. I do want to talk to you about if you've ever had trauma in that area, surgery, you know, sexual abuse. And if so, it's all about giving control to the patient. And I will tell them, you know, I really think this could be helpful. We can try another laxative. I am a little concerned it will work, but let's, let's get, let's do it and just give it two to four weeks, right? We're not going to say come back in six months, do this. If it's not working, then we'll revisit doing the exam. When I do the exam, I have, I mean, I sit, I minimize the lubricant so that there's not a bunch left there. I make sure it's wet. And I, I coach them through it with words. This is every step. If at any point in time you have pain, you start feeling anxious, you want me to stop, you just say stop and we're done. Like, and I and I give them that end. Last thing, resisting re-traumatization is, and I think, you know, one of the things I love that Dr. Taft brings up is she said, you know, anyone who gets an NG tube, anyone, just assume they've been traumatized. <laughs> Check in with them, right? Not everyone is going to have that be like a life-changing trauma. And, and we don't do that even with colonoscopies and endoscopies. Like we, um, there's two papers that have been written about does having a history of trauma make the experience of having a colonoscopy less pleasant than you know, the answer was yes, but there's really little like real actual research that's been done in that area. And so to, to me, any, I mean, we do intimate things to people and we should always ask consent and we should always ask, is there anything you've experienced in the past that could make this like extra scary? And, you know, I had one other patient, we, we had to come up with, we had her come into the office. She had a history of sexual trauma and needed a colonoscopy for a personal history of colon cancer and surveillance. And I had to bring her to the office, hear her story. We came up with a 10-step plan to try to make it feel safe for her. I walked her through the, the endoscopy suite after hours so she could see what it was going to look like. We made her first case of the day. Um, I gave her some anxiety medicines to take once she had signed then, but before she got her IV. I let her choose a playlist of songs that would make her feel safe. Uh, we made sure that she woke up to an all-female team. We made sure that when she was getting sedated and we were doing the timeout, the safety check in the in the endoscopy suite. We were usually standing behind patients with the scope and with the technician there. And we made sure that the rail was up and everyone was in front of her and nothing was lifted up, like exposing her bottom until she was completely asleep. And, and I had never thought about it before that case. And then I was just like, why are we not doing this for everyone? Because some people, just, you can ask them, they're not going to feel comfortable telling you. And so that's kind of what I'm working on with a couple of endoscopy centers currently is like, how do you just do, there's some things you're going to only do if you know this person's got a history of that. 
but there are some things that we should just make part of like routine care. Knowing again, going back to realize, recognize, like realizing how common this is, and that people just when you see somebody for a quick procedure, they may not feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, it's become a passion project of, of mine. Just you know, for personal trauma, just realizing. I think all of us go in wanting to help, and we don't realize that, especially with medical trauma, sometimes the things you do to save somebody, it doesn't mean that you you may have saved them. It doesn't mean that you didn't traumatize them, and it wasn't intended. But you know, being open to hearing that from patients is whether it's gaslighting, it's physical pain, it's whatever it may be. That stuff is a really important part of people's stories. And like what I would say, bringing it back to yoga is like you can have this like you know literal definition of yoga or translate it means union or to yoke. I find that a little impractical to work with sometimes in my life. But like the other way that I've had it described to me is that which narrows the gap. So that could be between body, mind, and breath. That could be between you know doctor and patient. That be, that could be between you know the, the patient's life and the things they have to do with their IBD and and the the life that they dream of and the things that they want to do. And it sort of transitions from this like esoteric Eastern thing to like this is like living yoga. And I think that to me has been really helpful. And so all this trauma informed stuff, it's really like how do we narrow the gap between me and you? Because otherwise I, I can't do as good a job as you deserve as a patient. I want to tell this story real fast, just based Please. on what you said. I was admitted to the hospital over the Thanksgiving holiday. And we talk a lot about this on the show. If anybody is listening, has listened. And one of the doctors actually asked me, so how are you doing with all of this? How are you coping with this emotionally? And I almost didn't answer him. And the thing that made me answer him is this show and all of you who are listening, because I told myself that I talk a good game on this show and I talk about having responsible providers who actually care about this stuff and how important it is for providers to ask these questions. And I would be a jerk if I was here in the presence of a provider who actually asked me this question and I did not respond honestly. So I did answer his question honestly. And I told him that it is hard. It is hard being in the hospital and not having any proof of the reason why I came to the hospital. It is hard being in the hospital, sitting here answering this question, talking to you, and you're not my doctor. And it is hard sitting here talking to you, trying to explain my 20 plus years of living with IBD. And you are asking me questions like, well, how much blood? Was it just on the toilet paper? When I can assure you, sir, that I did not drive three and a half hours and check myself into the ER for blood on toilet paper. So, you know, I was like, it's hard. It's hard to be here and answer questions like that. And he actually took that very well <laughs> and responded mm. very well. But I mean, I don't know, is that going to make a difference for the next time? Because it was hard for me to answer that question. Because when he asked me, so how much blood? Was it just blood on the toilet paper? I wanted to ask him to leave my room because yeah. I would not have driven myself and checked myself into the ER for blood on toilet paper. Yeah. So it's it's a hard balance. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I am so grateful for you being vulnerable and sharing that. Cause that, I think that's one of the fears I have is like, I mean, I mean, none of us are perfect all the time, but like it's a daily basis when I ask patients that they've had an experience like that, that they, they have. And I think we have a long way to go to try to make sure that like, you shouldn't have to walk in and wonder, is this, a, is this safe? Like emotionally and psychologically and not, I cannot imagine experiencing that. So I'm sorry. It's really brave of you to do that. And then to share it though. That was after already crying twice in the ER. So here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So don't wow. do that lightly either. No, I don't. But I had to stop. Anytime I have to explain or answer questions for a new provider, now, not always, this is only in the past three years, anytime I have to explain, answer questions to a new provider, somebody who's not familiar with my case, I have a panic attack. Hmm. And so I'm in the ER and two different doctors uh, have to ask me questions because you have to check yourself into the ER. So that means people have to ask you questions. So that's two panic attacks. And I just had to stop and looked at one of them. And I was like, you're going to have to give me a minute because I'm having a trauma response right now. I'm crying. I can't answer your questions. You just have to wait. So I had to do whatever I had to do to calm myself down. And I was like, okay, I can answer your questions now. And then a little while later, next doctor came in. I was like, you didn't have to wait. I'm having a trauma response right now. And then I can, I'll let you know when I'm finished and I can answer your questions. That's what I do now. Whenever I meet a new doctor and answer their questions, I just have a little, little old minty bee. And then I can answer their questions. Yeah, that is. Um, but I think that's like the ultimate, like giving, uh, you know, giving yourself permission in those moments to to have control, right? I mean, you obviously have lost control over so much else, but I mean, that's. I think that's incredible to be able to do that. I hate that that happened, but what it what it brings up in me is like, as providers, we can come up with these lists of like, how do we make this and that and the other like more trauma informed from a care standpoint. But I think it's like an incredible like opportunity to to just ask like a community of people who've been through medical trauma how do you get control in those situations where you've lost it like and that you just gave like an incredibly like beautiful example of just speaking your truth and i would be so curious to know like what other people out there have done as from a patient standpoint because I, i'm always trying to like you know erect this like perfectly trauma-informed like group of providers and environment and it and some of it is i mean like I, I, I do try to just say, you have permission to do whatever you need, like during this time, if you need a pause, if you need a person there, we can do that. And it, what I've found, it's not a hundred percent of the time. I have patients where the first visit, they're like, I'm not like, if we just decide together, we're not, we're not going to do it today. And I'm very clear and quick to say that when I catch that, that's what needs to be said. And then I've had somewhere they've gone to like a female pelvic floor physical therapist to do the rectal exam. Because I'm like, hey, if, if you're if the female patient and that's more comfortable, I trust these group I work with. But I had a patient who we went through that sort of sequence and then they had a, a fecal impaction like a month later and they wanted to come into the office. And I thought, oh gosh, like what do we do? And the way that we had gone through it, by that point in time, like she knew she was safe, like because she had had control to kind of dictate in this very imperfect situation that she was in how do i make this even if it's a little bit less awful and so we had to do like a fecal disimpaction like manual disimpaction with the finger which like if you've had a rectal exam it's not fun but i mean when you're doing a disimpaction like you're in there you're in you're out you're you know and so we you know i checked in with her frequently and then i checked in with her afterwards and then i called her that night and i, and I just think you know there's a way to like usher people through these things in a in a kind way as a provider but like i'm i bet patients have so many stories like yours that we're not hearing that could be so 
But I think you do bring up a good point is like, how do we, as part of medical training with all medical professionals, not just doctors, but also nurses and dietitians and everybody, how do we make this trauma informed? How do we make it so that that's the point of contact is how am I making this situation safe for this other person? And the assumption that there's going to be trauma just automatically as part of that. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about of like, how do you change medical training to make sure that this is a piece of that? Because chances are very good that this person, especially if they're living with a chronic disease, has had some sort of trauma typically associated with the place that they're currently in. And so how do you make it safe? So I think you're you're doing a beautiful job of that. And that's that's so lovely to hear. Now, how do we take that and replicate your thoughts and feelings and and the way that you're doing this to everybody else, especially ER? I mean, like emergency room doctors really are perhaps the and I, I don't want to be mean to them, but are probably the biggest offenders in this area because they just have to get people in and out and they're so like rushed. And so they don't have the time to do what you're doing where you're saying, how do we do this together? How do we talk about this? How do we, you know, they're just kind of trying to get people in and out and sometimes yeah. seeing people in a hallway on top of it, yeah. you know? No, it, it is. And, and I, I think like some of it is, what do you put in place, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint and training? of And there are trauma-informed care trainings. I did one online for myself when I was, I mean, I still consider myself a novice at this, but I'm, I'm aware of it. And honestly, the more aware I get, the more scared I get, because it's just like, I mean, you have to assume everybody. Some of it is also just, I think, and I have a chance to go to, to North Carolina with Dr. Drosman, who's like founding father of the Rome Foundation, and I do a train the trainer for doctor-patient communication with a lot of like really excellent senior GI doctors. And I think part of it is just like in taking histories and talking to patients, giving permission for that to be part of the story. I think so often there's so much shame around trauma, whether it's medical trauma and thinking, well, God, everyone else has to go through this too. And like just making it okay for that to be part of the story where this really impacted me in a negative way. Because we know patients with trauma that's not safe to talk about and, and try to work with together. I mean, they do seek more emergency care, they do tend to not show up until things are really bad. And you have to put yourself in their shoes and think, like, how bad must you have felt to say this is the better solution, you know, that our healthcare system feels so unsafe at times. And so, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of narrative medicine and trying to put the pieces together and go, oh, like, how might this fit into the story of your journey you've been on? And sometimes it requires saying, hey, I really think that there's so much there from the past, especially when it's, whether it's medical trauma or it's, it's other types where you really need a, a mental health professional. I, I absolutely don't try to take this on and go like, I'm going to play therapist. My job to me as a GI doctor is to hold space for it to be okay and to acknowledge it. I mean, I have some patients where they come in for a visit. I'm like, how are you doing on whatever it may be? This, have you started this medication? Have you started trying to do some breathing? Have you started, and they're like, to be honest, no, my husband had a stroke, this and that, and, and life has fallen apart. And they're like starting to cry. And I'm just like, that's a lot of shit. Can I just say that? Like, I mean, like that, that's a lot of shit to deal with. So I like to just acknowledge it really explicitly. The other thing is celebrating victories. Like this patient who came back a third time and needed a fecal dis, you know, a disimpaction. Afterwards, I was like, I don't know if I were in your shoes that I would have been able to like work through things so quickly and have an exam done. You know, even when patients are like, oh, I had a bad day. I'm like, yeah, but in the past, you when you had a bad day, it became like two bad weeks. And the fact that you had a bad day and you 
bounce back. Like that's, I mean, I call that out to them all the time. And I'm like, that's incredible, like in the face of what you're dealing with. And so, you know, I, I don't know, I, I have somewhat atypical like office visits, but it's because like when you miss this stuff, that's where you get people who've been to three, four, five doctors. And it's like, I would say of those, it's probably less than half where it's like a purely medical thing that needs to get addressed. <laughs> you need a different treatment. It's often there's some like piece of the puzzle, but it hasn't been able to be spoken into a true part of the person. So it's a lot of history taking is like it's his or her story, you know, and just actually helping them tell their story instead of going, okay, Crohn's disease, like which pretty bowel is it? You know, it's all these like checklist things we have to do like the nuts and bolts of care. But I mean, I want to know I'm, who who are you? Where have you been? What's happened to you? Not what's wrong with you. What's happened to you? And oh, you also have Crohn's disease. <laughs> it makes my job so much more fulfilling. And it usually makes patients just feel seen, which I think at a very human level, as corny as it is, like, I think we all just want to be seen. And I think the most sacred thing you can do for someone, and they can do for you, I should say, is to help you feel seen. But it's not always what is listed as the chief point for their office. It is not always listed as the chief complaint, right? That's not why we're going to the doctor. This has been amazing. And sadly, I have to ask you our last question, and I don't want to. What is the one thing that you want the IBD community to know? And since you are a healthcare provider, you can give us one piece of advice for patients or one piece of advice for providers or both. I would say the piece of advice for patients is, you know, if you land somewhere, you don't feel like you're being heard, you don't feel safe to speak certain parts of your your journey and your condition and your experiences. I encourage patients all the time, if I, if I ever make them feel that way, I'm like, find somebody who makes you feel safe, like, because you're going to be, you want to be with them for the long term. And I think, I think everyone out there, I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but sometimes it's just a mismatch and don't take it personally. But like, if you don't feel like you've found your person, it's okay to, to look around. It's not encouraging doctor shopping. It's saying like, you have a chronic illness that you need to trust that you can bring any of version of yourself to that person. And that's going to be validated. It's going to be acknowledged. And I get, I see a lot of second, third, fourth, fifth patients where like everything's been done. <laughs> there's, there's no, you don't need a fifth endoscopy. You just need somebody to listen and try to piece together. Like, where do we go? So that would be the one for patients. And I think for providers, especially in chronicnesses, and I, I got exposed to this when I was a pediatric special needs doctor, the mothers and fathers of those kids who couldn't talk to speak, they were the experts in their child's care. It didn't matter like if they had like 15 subspecialists at the top hospital in the country. If you wanted to know like, what do you do when this happens? Like you go to, and I think with IBD, start with that, right? It doesn't mean everybody knows everything perfectly about their condition, but start with trusting the patient. And I, it sounds so awful having to say that, but start with trusting the patient because they're trusting you and they have lived with this for many, many, many years. And, you know, they're inviting you into their care team, but they are the most important person in their care team. Just honor that. I'm going to do a last, last question. Jordan, when you and I were chatting earlier today, because you were, I think, a little nervous about coming on the show, you said you had a there was a quote that you said really resonated mm -hmm. with you. And I said, you should yeah. definitely say this one on the show because I think it will resonate with our audience. So do you remember the quote? Yeah, I do. The, the quote says, you know, the, the most profound spiritual practices don't happen on a meditation cushion or on a yoga mat. They happen in those moments where we feel ourselves sliding back into old habits and patterns and we choose to act differently. And it 
resonated a lot with me when I read it and shared with you because it just really is every day is an opportunity to just pay attention to this. But as patients, as providers, you know, this is how I've always done things and being open to might there be a way that's just better for me that honors a more whole version of myself. And so, yeah, thank you for reminding me. Of course, I definitely felt like that would resonate with our audience. And yeah, it's definitely something we all take away. Jordan, what a pleasure to talk to you as always. And what a treasure you are for our community. So thank you so much for being you and sharing all of your information and knowledge with us as well. And thank you everybody else for listening to the show and cheers guys. Cheers, cheers everybody. Hi, this is Dr. Shapiro. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Keep it classy, San Diego. <laughs>